everyone, I'm Ashley Griffin, your theatrical Hermione Granger, and today we are doing part two of our in-depth discussion about fairy tales. And if you haven't already checked out part one, please take a break and do so now. That is sort of a deep dive into fairy tales, storytelling, how stories are constructed, um, lots of great things that I think are really important to look at when we're looking at how to communicate a story well. So if you haven't already checked that out, please do that now, because that's sort of more of an in-depth look at the origin of mythic stories, where they come from, some misconceptions about them. But today what we're going to do is take a more detailed look at some of the tropes that come along with fairy tales and mythic stories, um, some of the controversies that surround them, and maybe a new way to look at them, which I think is really important because these tropes have worked their way into all storytelling around the world, really especially in Western storytelling, but they can be found everywhere. And why is this important for theater, you may ask, <laughs> besides the fact that I just love fairy tales and that kind of storytelling? Well, all good stories, all plays, all musicals are based in in this kind of pattern for how you communicate something that's going to move people and inspire people. It comes from Joseph Campbell's um, look at, you know, Hero with a Thousand Faces and the Hero's Journey, which you probably are most familiar with from something like Star Wars and um, even Marvel movies and things like that. But those kind of storytelling techniques are a part of every single successful story. And so I think it's something really important to look at, especially since I hear more and more controversy about, you know, we don't want to take our kids to see Disney films or Disney musicals because they perpetuate, you know, really bad stereotypes and really bad ideas for young women um, to, you know, all those things are old fashioned and they don't really have anything for us. Um, and it's been a real criticism with both audiences attending things and creators trying to address those things. And we've sort of found ourselves in a world of trying to fix issues and problems without sort of understanding the genesis or origins of them or their purpose. So I thought that being a Hermione Granger, this was a great thing to take a look at, especially because it's something that I'm really passionate about. So today we're going to look at a lot of things that listeners have sent me, um, people that I know have sent me about sort of tropes that are really controversial when it comes to fairy tales and how those things have woven their way into musical theater and storytelling in general. So I'm not speaking off a script or anything. This is really off the cuff conversational, um, but I hope that you enjoy it and that it provides you know, the seeds for a, a larger conversation. I would really love to know your thoughts and please feel free to message me or leave comments or things like that. So basically one of the places that we left last time was talking about the idea that myths and fairy tales and all those sorts of things have a real deep metaphoric significance that has sort of started to fall out in our current society that is no longer really a storytelling culture in the way that human beings once were, you know, even a hundred years ago, and how a lot of things have come to be read as literal um, in sort of a almost historical drama sense in terms of when you're watching a, a piece, how you're meant to be taking it. The metaphor and the poetry of it has kind of tended to fall away. And with that, a lot of those metaphoric sorts of things um, have seemingly become really problematic. Um, I think, you know, Disney's sort of the one that gets attacked most often because Disney is sort of our current perpetrator of 
fairy tales and all that. Um, they also have a really big presence on Broadway and in musical theater. Um, but these these types of things are very inherent in the nature of musical theater, which started out in operetta and, you know, into all those sort of tropes from back and back and back from way before, and they're still with us. So I'm going to just sort of go through a list of a lot of things that people have sent, and I'm going to just do a bit of a deep dive into my thoughts on it and maybe a different way to look at it that can maybe be addressed from anything from how you maybe decide to go choose to see shows to if you're a writer, how you choose to structure things, um, to all those sorts of things. So this is more looking at some of those specifics that we hinted at last time a little bit. So let me, I'm getting out my list right now and checking it out. So one of the big things that people have brought up is this idea of sort of love's true, true love's kiss. And with that, the idea of that the finish to a lot of these fairy tales, the happily ever after seemingly is, uh, you know, a princess finding a guy and getting married and that that's the happily ever after. The happily ever after is tied to a man. It's specifically tied to a magical love that it's this magical kiss and everything's perfect and wonderful and it doesn't really address, um, you know, the complex nature of real relationships, the idea of you know, autonomy and independence for a woman and a happily ever after coming out separately from a man and all that, which I think are all really good things to be looking at and certainly things that I'm really excited that our current society has moved toward talking about a little bit more because I think they're all very important. So a first thing, a little bit of a history about True Love's Kiss. True Love's Kiss was really primarily invented by the Disney company. It if you really go back and read a lot of the original Grimm fairy tales, True Love's Kiss actually isn't in there in the way that we think think of it. Um, one of the most overt, um, which we talked about a little bit last time, is Snow White. You know, the original, the original Disney movie, the original Disney princess. Um, this idea that Snow White eats the poison apple and the thing that brings her back to life is a prince comes along, kisses her, and wakes her up. That's actually not what happens in the original story. The original story that the Grimm brothers published, which in itself was sanitized from what the original folk tales were, was that a prince did come along, um, felt this deep connection and love for Snow White, and basically said that he didn't want her, you know, just sitting in the woods somewhere that he wanted to bring her back to his castle and do honor and respect by her and was going to like set up a monument to her in her glass casket in his castle. So he orders all his people to start carrying the glass coffin back to his home and they drop it. The piece of poison apple gets loosened from her throat and that's what wakes her up. In And Sleeping Beauty is kind of the other big one. In the really, really, really original version of Sleeping Beauty, which you can still read in a lot of um, different different archival collections of it, is, <laughs> sorry, really dark. If you have kids listening to this, maybe <laughs> cover their ears momentarily. Um, but Snow White pricks her finger and falls asleep. A prince does show up, um, but he doesn't kiss her and wakes her up. He kind of falls in lust with her and rapes her while she's asleep and then leaves. Um, she then gets pregnant while she's still asleep and while she's still asleep gives birth to twins who when, when they're born are starving so they start sucking on their mother's finger 
out of a reflex. Um, it sucks the poison flax out of her finger and she wakes up just in time for Prince to come in the window for round two. And he's like, oh, cool, you're awake and I guess I have children now. So this idea of true love's kiss, while it does occur in a rare edition of a fairy tale here and there, really the way that we know of it was created by the Disney company. Um, which I think is really interesting to look at. Snow White came out in the early 30s. I want to do a longer thing on this at some point, um, and I think I probably will with Matthew Ryan Limerick's wonderful Dole Up in Dreams podcast, which is specifically about Disney films. But Snow White, I think, needs to be taken in a very specific context in that it, you know, it is a, it is a fairy tale, but it was not being created to be this deep, you know, um, um, emotionally complex look at a fairy tale. It was the very first feature-length animated movie that had ever been done. For all intents and purposes, it was an extended um, Silly Symphony, which is what Disney was doing. Silly Symphonies were sort of their really short, like, you know, few-minute-long cartoons that were um, basically a fairy tale version of sort of a Warner Brothers cartoon, for lack of a better description. So it was a feature-length version of that. It was not supposed to be super emotionally deep it was really creating a new form of cinema and um just the technical aspects at play had never been done before and i think that we need to look at it a little bit in that context um it was also very much coming out of the operetta and melodrama and panto traditions and that that's what it was trying to be and we certainly look at films and fairy tales and even disney movies very very differently now and i think that we have to be careful about looking historically at all those films in the same light i understand when we're talking about showing them to children it's a different thing but that's something that i'll get into in a minute but so the idea of this super romantic operatic melodramatic True love conquers all thing was personified in this physical moment of true love's kiss that happened with Snow White. It does happen again later in Disney's Sleeping Beauty, although it is interesting because Sleeping Beauty, the Disney version, was actually one of the first versions to try to add a little bit of depth and context to the relationship between Sleeping Beauty and the prince. You know, they've met before. It is a relationship. It is a slight buddings of a romance that is, you know... Um, mutually consensual from the beginning, although not super deep or evolved or long-term. Um, but that's sort of the second place that it comes up. Um, I see this reflected a lot in people's comments about musical theater, especially traditional or golden age musical theater of, you know, the hero and heroine meet each other, look into each other's eyes and are instantly in love. And that's the thing. So basically all this together is the criticism of it is this idea that true love is this magical thing. You take one look at somebody and that you instantly know that it's true love and it's forever. Um, and then you dive into this relationship. Um, something that is parodied in Frozen, actually, with um, Anna and Hans and that whole idea of you can't marry somebody that you just met. So first of all, um, two things that I have to say about this. One is I think that True Love's Kiss and also that idea in musical theater of looking across a room at somebody and instantly knowing, um, they serve two purposes. One is a metaphoric purpose. I don't think that this idea was ever meant to be taken literally, that just two people in real life, that there's this magical kiss that solves all problems. Um, I think it's supposed to be taken as... Um, a metaphoric representation of a, a physical personification of a deep true love that people have 
with each other. Um, I think that this has been commented on in a really lovely way. I, I actually really like the way it's been addressed in the ABC television show Once Upon a Time, also owned by Disney, um, which actually they do it in Maleficent a little bit too, although I have other issues with that film. But the idea of true love um, being something that exists across multiple different kinds of relationships, parents and children and siblings and best friends, and um, that true love can conquer everything symbolized in a kiss being the metaphor for it. Um, I don't think that it's something that's necessarily meant to be taken literally. I think it's meant to be a metaphoric personification for something that has to do with the power that real love can actually have. I think the other thing that we need to keep in mind that I'm looking at my notes about this right now, um, about love at first sight, I think the idea of love at first sight is also something that while I think it's great that we we do need to find a good way to address it, especially in musical theater, it's a convention that has a storytelling purpose that is something, it's it's become a bit of a necessary evil. Um, one of the criticisms specifically around it that I hear is, you know, you don't actually just look at somebody and know that they're the one and like you're instantly like going to be with them forever. You know, we need to see representations of complex relationships being built and what that actually means to build something like that over time. And I 100% agree. I think that that's very, very true. I do, however, think that you we need to think a little bit about, for lack of better description, form follows function and we need to look at what the story is that we're telling if the story that we're telling is about the genesis of a relationship or about the um detailed nuanced relationship between two people a hundred percent absolutely and i think that there's actually really great examples of the spectrum of that kind of thing for example the broadway musical first date is an entire full-length musical just about the details of two people meeting for the first time on a first date and it takes you know over two hours to explore the intricacies of a first meeting between two people and it certainly doesn't end with them being like you're the one for the rest of my life it deals with relationships you know, um, you know, in a more complex terms than that. Um, however, when we look at some other things, like Carousel's maybe the first one that comes to mind, and there are a lot of other issues with that show, although I do think it's a beautiful musical. Um, the story of that musical is not about the complexities of two people forming a relationship. A, a complex relationship is a part of the story, but the story as a whole, I think, has to do with forgiveness. It has to do with um, becoming a good person. It has to do with our responsibilities toward other people. And it's one of those things that if the courtship of Julie and Billy was really given time, that would be the show. You know, if we, in, in practical terms, if we really look at some of these stories, if, if, these romances were allowed to be given really the full weight and full time to explore all the nuances of two people meeting and really falling in love in a in a very realistic sense. That would be the entire musical, and even that would not be enough time to f explore it fully. So I think that sometimes we have conventions because we need to get on with whatever, you know, the story is. And we can't spend, you know, three hours just on the, the genesis of the relationship. So again, I think that this whole thing in general is another moment that I think it's great to look at it in a metaphoric sense, that it's representing something else. Um, I do think that we sometimes get caught up in this, again, I do a much deeper dive into in the first part of this um, fairy tale series. Um, I, I think that this is for me personally, a lot of people may disagree. 
I think that we can give children more credit. I think that children all often are much better at looking at symbolism and metaphor than adults are. Um, again, everybody's different. Um, if, if you're a parent, you certainly know your child better than I do per se. Um, all I know is from my own experience, I never watched like Snow White growing up and got from it, oh, I need to get a man and then my life will be good. I I was very clear actually that it was a metaphor. And if you look at the whole thing, it, it really is. I mean, he, he Snow White basically dies. He kisses her. She wakes up and he takes her to a literal castle in the clouds. Honestly, for me, and again, I know I'm a weird Hermione Granger person. To me, it actually had a giant metaphor of death in it. It was about the idea of resurrection, the idea of love, um, the idea of finding joy. It, for me, was never tied to a man. Um, Cinderella wasn't, none of them, I, I personally never got the, the moral from them that I needed to find a man in order to find happiness. I also never got the message from seeing a musical that I would just see somebody and that would be and I'll be all of our relationship. You know, I took I took them as as metaphors that great. So what we're doing right now is we are giving a beautiful metaphor for the fact that these two people fell in love, had a very deep connection, and now we're going to get on with the rest of the story because we have a limited amount of time in which to tell you a story. Um, so for what it's worth, that's sort of my view on it. Um, the true love's kiss trope is something that's much more recent um, and I I think is is a very sort of Disney-specific thing. Again, I always took it as a metaphor, um, but that's sort of a little bit more of a genesis of that. Um, so the next thing that people wrote in about was the idea, which is tied into what I just finished discussing, which is the idea of a, a woman needing to wait for a man and, you know, just, you know, someday my prince will come, just wait and, you know, your prince will rescue you and this man will rescue you. Um, traditionally, and again, <laughs> I know this is getting really analytical, but that's, that's what I'm here for. Um, the idea of royalty and the idea of a prince meant something very different in the times in which these stories were being told. Um, back in the day, um, a, a ruler, a king, a prince was, um, divinely ordained literally they were meant to they were allegedly god's representative on earth um if you look into shakespeare's richard ii and um, there's some beautiful beautiful language about this idea um, of divine right and that is a whole separate issue that um there are you know a lot of issues with but for you know the 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 people that were passing along these folk tales and telling these stories the idea of a prince seeing you and seeing something beautiful in you was not meant to be a literal, and then a prince will come and marry you. The idea of a prince seeing you and seeing beyond your imperfections and falling in love with you despite a low status was very much a metaphor for, you know, the idea of God's love that, you know, the last shall be first. Um, that, that whole, that whole idea. So, the, I, the thought back then of, like, say, Cinderella, that out of all these beautiful women, that the serving girl would be not chosen. That's not what I mean. That, that the prince would see into her heart, that would see that she is the most worthy, was a giant metaphor for, you know, being, being a child of God. And the last will be first. And it was a metaphor for the divine. 
We've since moved quite a ways away from that, obviously, both in the fact that, you know, with the exception of a couple countries in the world, monarchies don't really exist anymore. The ones that do, um, especially the British royal family, while there's certainly this idea of, you know, the, the, the right to rule, it's, it's much more of we're serving the people, we are of the people, we are human beings ourselves, and we are, you know, not the ones making decisions about your life, but we're here because of duty to serve the people in our country. Um, this idea of the divine being, you know, being th through the, the ruling class is definitely different than it used to be. Um, and so we tend to think of it more literally. You know, there's there's a reason that when Kate Middleton married Prince William, we were all talking about like, oh, it's a real life, you know, Cinderella story, which it, which it is to a degree. But again, it gets us away from the metaphor. And if we think about it in literal terms, in terms of what the world we're living in today, the idea of an actual prince seeing someone picking them out and choosing them to marry is a very, that's a very different story. It's a very different metaphor and meaning than what it used to be. Um, I would also encourage everybody to really look into the details and depths of what some of these stories are. Um, and also the fact that in none of these stories is the heroine's motivation to find a man. The heroine's motivation is always um, to be loved, to be seen for who they really are, to survive and escape their horrible, abusive lives. And this idea of the greatest being in the land or in the world, something that is so insane and preposterous, literally happening because of the goodness of somebody's heart, that's the idea that the story's meant to perpetuate. Um, you know, it, it would... I'm, I'm trying to think of a really good metaphor for today. I don't know if there really is one. I mean, I feel like we are more likely to hold, um, say, rock stars and pop stars up to that sort of metaphoric standard more than we would like a, a prince like the idea of like Beyonce seeing you in the audience in a concert and you aren't wearing cool clothes and you could only afford a ticket in the back seats but like sees something in you and brings you up on stage I feel like metaphorically that's closer to um what the original stories were trying to get at than the idea of you literally need a prince um also, again, getting a little metaphorical about it, back in the day when these stories were being told, you know, survival was a real thing and women's rights were kind of non-existent. So when you're talking about a story in which um, you're, you're talking about, you know, somebody who's very low on the social hierarchy, you know, you're talking about mainly, you know, young single women that usually are separated from their families um they're usually of the serving class being elevated to this high of a status you know you you needed something like marriage was kind of the way that survival happened in that day and age and the idea that um you end up getting married because of love you know never in any of these stories you know in, in the original stories it's not like cinderella's like okay, well, I guess this guy thinks I'm hot, so thank God I'm going to get security now and I'll be taken care of. It's, again, metaphoric. A divine being sees your goodness. but it's, it's meant to be mutual, deep love between the two people. That that's, that's what it's commenting on and that's the hope that it's drawing from. I would be really interested, if any of you guys have thoughts out there, what maybe a modern-day equivalent for that metaphoric significance would be, you know, if, we, if we're taking it out of the the literalness of some of that, what um, maybe some modern day metaphoric stories like that would be. Um, but I also think that that's, it's different because we're, we're living in a society where 
you know, not everybody is spiritual, not everybody is religious. The idea of the divine seeing your heart is not something that's as built into our collective, you know, day-to-day lives as it once was. Um, so, yeah. Um, but I do think it's important to note that none of these characters, even in Disney movies, are waiting around for a man, with the possible exception of Snow White, which is, it's a separate issue. You know, she does sing, someday my prince will come, you know, which I think is more, you know, someday, someday somebody will love me. The only time that it really exists in the way that blatantly exists in the way that everybody really criticizes is actually in Frozen and it's doing it to subvert the expectation. You know, Anna, Anna, her I want song is I want to look across the room and have love at first sight and meet a guy. Like her I want is I want a man, not necessarily I want to be loved, not that I want to, you know, somebody to see my heart. It's I don't want to be alone and maybe I'll meet a guy. And then the whole rest of the movie is about breaking down that stereotype. But, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the things that, that we criticize, like, for example, one of the ones that I mentioned before of, um, you know, the Little Mermaid giving up her voice. A lot of people now read the Little Mermaid as the terrible story about a teenage girl who gives up her voice for a man. That's a hundred percent not what the story actually is. If, but definitely if you read the original version, but also if you go back and look at the Disney movie, the, the Disney movie even is about a young independent woman who feels that she's being very repressed, doesn't feel comfortable in her own skin, doesn't feel comfortable in the world that she's in. Her I Want song is about I want to belong somewhere. You know, I I, I don't feel like I belong. I want to feel like I belong. Um, she gets a crush on a guy. She doesn't go give up her voice. She doesn't do anything. She has a crush. She's talking to Flounder about like, I want to go see him. And then her father commits an act that's frankly very abusive and she's manipulated by the villain of the piece into sacrificing something because she feels that she has no other option none of the stories are actually about a woman waiting around for a man they're about a woman who is in really dreadful circumstances who needs love in her life and then goes on a journey and ends up finding it in varying metaphoric circumstances um, I think that that's also really important when we look at musicals and when we look at golden age musicals, because again, operettas that these stories originated from are very linked into this kind of fairy tale esque storytelling. Um, pantos also, especially, but the, the we also have to keep in mind what the the style of those things were that they they drew out of. You know, operettas, melodramas, and pantos were not meant to be taken seriously. They were sort of like the theatrical version of cartoons. And they're, they're super fun. They're not supposed to be morals about how to go around and live your life. Um, musicals also took, you know, a while to develop. You know, when we, in musical theater history classes, when we talk about the advancement of the genre, we're really talking about the way in which they were created, the integrated musical, how music was used, how dance, um, text, and music was integrated to tell a fully fleshed out story. Um, going into deep psychological... Um, tales of the way that human beings were functioning in the real world was something that was, you know, it was, it was slower, a little bit slower going. So again, a lot of these things are coming out of a tradition of metaphor. And I think it's really great to view it through that lens and not necessarily take it as literal. Okay. Another one that people have sent in to talk about is the idea of um, like, princes are handsome, princesses are beautiful, witches are ugly, 
and it perpetuates these terrible stereotypes um, when it comes to body image. Um, this is something that I think is really interesting, and I, again, think that the way that this functioned in original storytelling um, styles was very different than today. It's actually the one that I probably do have the most issue with. Um, I'm happy to see that at least there's slow progress and change happening when it comes to casting and whatnot. Um, but the origin of it um, actually is very different, I think, than people realize. I think we tend to latch on to things like in The Wizard of Oz when Glinda says only bad witches are ugly and things like that. They're actually relatively new, um, at least in the past like 100 to 75 years, ideas in our culture. The The world of fairy tales, myths, and, you know, the fae, if we go back to, you know, Celtic mythology, well, not, well, I'm sorry, not Celtic mythology, but some of the ideas of the fantasy world of fae, such as um, George MacDonald talks about in his wonderful book, Fantasies, is the idea of the beauty of a world where who we are on the inside is reflected in who we are on the outside. And I think that there's a part of us deep down that wishes that uh, an existence like this could be true that you know there the if if somebody who is good and kind and wonderful on the inside that that's reflected in their outward appearance and likewise somebody who is villainous and evil and wicked that that's also reflected in their outward appearance um Road Dahl has a, a great book called the twits and in just the first few pages he talks about this idea that um I don't have the book in front of me, but it's something along the lines of it doesn't matter what like facial features you were born with. Somebody who is kind, who goes through life, you know, trying to look for the positive and wants to spread joy that no matter what they what they actually look like, that that joy will spread through their whole being until eventually they will just become more and more and more beautiful that, you know, you see the light shining behind their eyes and it doesn't matter Again, physical characteristics, they become beautiful because of their essence. And likewise, the most beautiful person on the face of the earth, if they go through their life with anger and rage and um, envy um, in their heart, that it will just make them more and more and more hideous to look at. That even if their facial features technically are perfect, that just their ugliness will, you know, come through. And I think that there's poetic beauty in that and I think that there's something about all of us that feels that in some way that that's how the world should be um I think that fairy tales are functioning in a similar way um I think Beauty and the Beast is a really great example the point of of him being a beast is not oh you have to learn to love somebody who's unattractive it's that through his change through the change of his from his cold heart to his loving heart, that that then becomes reflected in his outward appearance. Um, so I think that that's actually a really beautiful metaphor um, of stories from a land where your outside is reflecting what's on the inside. I don't have a problem with that. I actually think that they're lovely, beautiful stories in that. Where I think that that's a problem is in how casting has often worked in the retelling of some of these stories. Um, I think that we live in a very um, beauty-obsessed culture. We in certainly have a very specific Western standard of beauty that I think is really dangerous and really detrimental. And so we have sort of taken the idea of, you know, the 
beautiful heroine with a loving heart to great we need to cast somebody with the most traditional western standard of beauty and that I think is very problematic Um, and I have a lot of issues with that I mean I know people that have auditioned for jobs at Disney and maybe they had like a bump on their nose and so they were relegated to only being able to play the evil characters that I think is horrific and horrible and very very detrimental um but I think that there's got to be a a really clever way to tell these metaphoric stories so that the heart of it is reflected I also think that that can just be through you you know the the performance of the person that it doesn't matter who's playing the villain or who's playing the heroine um but through the performance the idea of beauty shining through comes through no matter what physical body is inhabiting the role um So yeah, I I think actually a really great analogy for this and a more modern example of where this metaphor has gone really right in a story is the wonderful Miyazaki film Howl's Moving Castle. And it's been a little while since I've watched it from beginning to end, but basically there's a young woman in it who is cursed to inhabit the body of an old woman. And when she and she, she's trying to figure out how to go back to the way that she's supposed to look. And it's discovered that, you know, when she falls asleep or when she's not thinking about herself, when she's not thinking about her appearance or thinking negative thoughts, she goes back to looking like herself and she has no idea of it. But everybody else sees her the way that she actually is. Um, so if you want to check out a really great story that deals with the intrinsic metaphor, I would highly suggest watching Howl's Moving Castle. Um That being said, I think that, again, the original fairy tales are really clear, are pretty clear in their metaphors. Um, I find them very clear. I do think that modern day casting um, and the language in some films and shows has become very problematic. So I think that that's something we need to move away from. I am very excited to start to see um, different body types and all sorts of ethnicities and whatnot a little bit more represented Um, you know, on the Broadway stage and in theater, but I think we need to go much, much further in that. And I think that that can be a great thing for any performers out there too. You know, I, I know people that look very stereotypically Disney princess, that that's not a, a character or a story that's close to their heart. And they feel very pigeonholed because of how they look, um, that, you know, they want to maybe delve into other sorts of characters i also know other people that deeply feel called to tell stories like cinderella and whatnot who aren't traditionally cast in those things so i think that in terms of our modern representations of it and our modern casting that's definitely an issue that needs to be addressed i don't really feel that it's a problem in a lot of these inherent stories um because again it's meant to be a metaphor about what's in somebody's heart it's not meant to be a story about the prettiest girl gets the guy. I think that's very dangerous, and I highly, highly disagree with that. Um, let's see. Oh, another thing that's come up that I think is um, is really great, and there's actually a lot of really great YouTube videos about this. Again, I'm a huge fan of Lindsay Ellis's. She does a really, really great deep dive into the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast, where she deals with this a little bit. But the next one is the idea of plot holes. Um, specifically, somebody said the idea that we need to understand how every detail of magic works. Um, yeah, this is something that's interesting. I think it's also really hilarious to look at how this has been addressed in a lot of the live-action remakes of Disney films, um, because now that we have the internet, which is wonderful in a lot of ways, there's a lot of times for people to sit in 
chat rooms and discussions and talk about everything from, well, wait a minute, in Beauty and the Beast, you know, like some of the, um, you know, like dishes are alive, but some of them don't seem to be. And like, you know, what are the rules? And are, is, is everything in the castle sentient? And, you know, from that to, you know, just just, just lots of little de- details that people like to pick apart. That is super fun to pick apart, but then Disney feels the need to address all of them, which then creates even more plot holes and issues. <laughs> um, so I find it kind of hilarious. Um, again, I think that we need to think of these stories metaphorically. I know I'm, you know, saying that till the cows come home, but also the idea that some, that the different stories are meant to be told in different ways. Um, the image that's coming to my mind right now is like going and looking at different works of art. You know, you have abstract art, you have impressionistic art, you have hyper, hyper realistic art. Um, And just because something isn't super hyper realistic doesn't make it bad art. Um, I think that the idea with a lot of fairy tales and myths, um, and even, you know, musicals and plays and whatnot, is they're meant to be slightly abstract brushstrokes. They're not meant to be all the little teeny tiny details filled in. They're meant to be giving you a deeper truth. They're not meant to be you know, a, a historical account of something. Now, I think that there is a really great place for historical accounts. And I think that there's lots of retellings of things that do that beautifully, you know, you set, setting fairy tales in really realistic settings and answering all those questions. Um, there's a really cool retelling of um, the fairy tale Snow White and Rose Red called Tender Morsels that does put it into a more historical context. Um, I'm thinking about Gregory Maguire's Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister that also puts Cinderella into a a great historical context. I love those stories. I think they're great. Um, But that's one kind of storytelling and it serves a different purpose. I think that a lot of those stories, one of the things that they're doing are meant to be commenting on um, the gritty realism of some of the ideas in these fairy tales, um, how our lives are not dissimilar and they're meant to be connecting these mythic stories to a gritty reality. I love that. Some of the stories, however, are meant to be these beautiful, broad brushstrokes that allow us to see a deeper truth. And the point of them is a beautiful, you know, impressionistic work that lets us see this deeper truth throughout it. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we try to force one style of storytelling to function within the rules of a different style of storytelling. You know, if we're looking at an impressionistic fairy tale to demand that it contain like, you know, historical and magical accuracy, I don't know what magical accuracy is, I guess, whatever the rules are that you create for the world. Um, If that's something that interests you, awesome. I want you to go and write that and I really want to see it. But to criticize that impressionistic work because it's not holding true for the rules of this historically accurate thing over here, I think is not doing anybody a service. Likewise, going to something that's really hyper-realistic and saying, well, you know, it lost some of the um, ethereal metaphoric beauty of the original is holding it to a standard of a style of storytelling that it's not trying to function within. Um, So I think that it's really important that we take a work on on its own terms. now that's assuming that a, a, a work has been created really, really effectively. You know, bad storytelling is, you know, just bad storytelling. But, um, you know, I remember when Beauty and the Beast came out and the creators coming out in, in interviews and saying things like, you know, we're not trying to answer questions about whether every piece of flatware is alive. We're not trying to answer questions about the detailed chronological history 
of X, Y, and Z. We're not trying to comment on the fact that historically this story took place not too long before the French Revolution. All those things would be really great and interesting. Actually, there's a great um, novel called Rose Daughter um, that I highly recommend that does put it into more of a historical context. But to ask something to fit into um, a category that it's not trying to function within, I think is doing it a disservice. And if you're really intrigued by all those plot holes, which there are stories that I'm really intrigued by plot holes, um, I there's a plot hole for me in the original Sleeping Beauty that I went and wrote a whole novel about, <laughs> um, then I highly encourage you to go and do that. And it can serve as great inspiration. But I think that um, when we start nitpicking something based on rules under which it's not trying to function, that we, you know, get into a lot of problems. Um, yeah, so those are sort of the main things that people sent me. If there are any other major things that stand out to you of issues with mythic storytelling or fairy tales or, you know, traditional musical theater or whatnot, um, please send it my way. I'd love to continue to do a deep dive into this, obviously. I'm, I'm very passionate about this form of storytelling. But all this is basically to say, I think that in the world that we're living in now, um, especially in the wake of the wonderful things like the Me Too movement and He for She and, you know, Black Lives Matter and talking about representation and all these social issues that have needed addressing for a long time. And I think we're experiencing a bit of a wonderful zeitgeist where people are getting kind of fed up and being like, no, I'm sick and tired of ignoring these things. We need to talk about them. I 100% agree with that. And I'm so happy that I'm living at a time when that's going on. I think that we're starting to swing a little bit dangerously, though, to a place where all stories must deal perfectly with all of these issues. All stories must deal with these issues head on. Otherwise, they're dangerous for our kids. We shouldn't show them these things. It's going to give them the wrong ideas. Um, and I think that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater a little bit in that some stories are meant to be read as metaphors. They're meant to talk about deeper truths. And I think that it's can be really wonderful to our, to allow ourselves to... Um, latch on to these metaphoric truths that can have really great um, resonance in our lives. You know, I personally, for me, fairy tales, like throughout my life, and especially my childhood, well, and, and today, but when I was starting when I was very young, I guess is what I mean to say, they kind of saved my life. You know, they taught me that, you know, dark things happen in life. And these are the ways that you can go through it. And that, you know, being a good and kind person um, is powerful and it's beautiful and that that will be recognized in the end, not meaning recognized by I'll get a husband or that I'll, you know, get this material thing, but meaning that whether you think of it spiritually or um, in terms of cosmically or in, just in your heart or something, that those things matter and that those things can make a difference. Um Th those are the things that I really got from stories, that it's it's okay to fight for what you want, that it's okay to be going through difficult circumstances. Um, oh, one of the other things that somebody mentioned was the idea of lack of specifically mothers in fairy tales. Um, again, I think it's meant to be, it's it's meant to be a metaphor and it's meant to be, to put the heroine, hero, <laughs> the heroine and hero in a situation where they have no support system. And, you know, as coming from somebody who didn't always have a lot of resources that maybe other people fortunately did have, the idea that, you know, you can be at the lowest of the low, you can literally be without um, any of these other, you know, helps, 
and that there's still hope and that there's still you still have power and there's still things that you can do and that life isn't all sunshiny and isn't all wonderful that sometimes you know you're going to be trapped in a tower with a really horrific witch who wants to kill you and that that's something that's a part of life but you can deal with it and you can survive it and my concern when I hear about a lot of parents saying like I'm never going to show my kid a Disney movie I don't want them to think that they just need a man to get by I appreciate that sentiment I don't want any young woman to grow up with that idea either but I worry that we're losing some of these really important and powerful lessons that you know you you do have inner strength that goodness will out that you can overcome these things and that people will see your inherent worth and that doesn't have to come from a man it doesn't have to come from a romantic partner it you know just can come from the world or it can come from a friend or it can come from you know an accomplishment or whatnot and it can come from god and i think that those are really really important lessons that we all need and i would just encourage everybody to maybe if these are things that bother you just try to reframe a little bit sometimes how you're viewing a story and maybe um challenge yourself to view it with a metaphoric lens on instead of a literal lens on and i think that there are really great deep meanings and truths that we can arrive at through it Um, i think that there's definitely a time and place to address these actual you know social problems that exist Um, and then there's a time and place to deal in these other issues and themes Um, so yeah so i would just basically encourage everybody to um look for all the complexities within stories to examine them with in the context in which they're being presented to you and not necessarily according to the rules or structure um with which you would like them to be operating at that moment um and then yeah i think just to to I think to be to be open to all of these things and to see how as I mean, I'm assuming that many of you listening are artists how those things can be incorporated into your storytelling the thing that I really care about is the importance and power of stories and the importance and power of these deeper themes and if some of these tropes are things that are real problems for you awesome I would love to see you create a story that these deeper themes are dealt with with totally different metaphors surrounding them i would love to see what the metaphors for today might be in a different context but basically i would just sort of encourage everyone to not throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to these things um to maybe look into them a little bit more to to explore and learn about what the original versions were um and also to know that i think that everybody is is much more intelligent usually hopefully than we sometimes give them or ourselves credit for that it's totally valid to watch a film that doesn't have a great message and be like cool i didn't really agree with that message so awesome i'm not going to take that one with me um and i i would encourage everybody to to allow the next generation to be exposed to these things and talk talk to them talk them through it and talk to them about what they're getting out of it and what are things they can get out of it and all of that. But basically, I would just like to share my enthusiasm for this topic with everybody, encourage you to look at these deeper themes um, and metaphoric structure when you're creating art of your own or viewing someone else's art. Um, Yeah, and just to encourage a conversation about all this. So what do you think? What are some issues that you have? What are some things that other people have issues with that you don't? Um, What are some ways that our current storytelling is dealing with this stuff really in a great way? 
um, I would really love to hear. So thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I'm Ashley Griffin, your theatrical Hermione Granger. Feel free to check out my website at www.ashleygriffinofficial.com and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>